Um, then we've done, this has been a very, very unusually slow class because there's so many problems that people have with Genesis. So we spent week after week after week dealing with a lot of these problems and some of the superfluous, well, it isn't superfluous because people keep raising questions and attacking the text from these areas. Uh, it's sort of like um, during the Korean War, the Chinese could launch attacks on our troops from the, across the Yalu River and we couldn't bomb them because of various political constraints. And uh, of course, the way you take care of the problem is go for wherever the attack is being launched from and you take out the base, the launch base, and that solves the problem. But we don't, we don't nationally seem to understand that, and when it comes to the Christians, we don't seem to understand it too much either. So that's why we deal with these areas. We're basically engaging physics, geology, anthropology, psychology, every one of these areas, mathematics and everything else that we've dealt with in these notes, because those are the places where unbelief entrenches itself, forms a fortress and a stronghold, and then opens fire in our position. So when they open fire on our position from that position, then we're going to fire back. And that's why the controversy happens. Well, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for, again, the text of Scripture and for the teacher of Scripture, the Holy Spirit. We ask that he would illuminate our hearts to this last area of concern that has plagued the interpretation of Genesis for at least a hundred years. And so we, we ask that this material be at least clear in its basic form for us tonight. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. No supplement this week because you already have Appendix D, and this is the last lesson, and this deals with geology. The four appendices are, are just sort of extra notes to the course. First one was the interpretive problems of Genesis and why there is a conflict, <coughs> why there's a limited room to maneuver <coughs> in one's interpretation of Genesis to avoid the conflict. <coughs> Appendix B, we dealt with the biological issue, and we said there that in the biological realm, the controversy is over whether there are species boundaries, whether things reproduce after their kinds, or whether in fact we've had a transmutation, procreation and transmutation across boundaries. And the pagan belief from the ancient world to the modern world, whether it's Darwin today or whether it's Enuma Elish centuries ago, both hold to the same view that nature has no real boundaries. It's just a continuum of things and that procreative powers, whether they be gods in the Enuma Elish or, or selective reproductive rates in Darwin, it's interesting that both ancient and modern paganism concentrate on procreation. C, Appendix C, we dealt with last week, <clears throat> was on the clock problem of how we date things. And we showed how there are, there is no unanimity of opinion on clocks that are used to date the Earth or the universe, or astronomical clocks, and that, in fact, all of them are plagued with a presupposition that we can't agree with as, as Christians. Now, 2 Peter 3 says that the skeptic says that all things continue as they were from the beginning, meaning that history has had a placid, uniform, Structure. There's been no great interferences. There's been no great upsets in decay rate constants and that sort of thing. Now tonight we come to Appendix D. And uh, again, because it is the last uh, lesson, I was going to uh, go over some of the, uh, just to review before we get into a lot of the details of the science of things, um, just to uh, refresh our minds, to review one last time, just so you won't forget. Every week, practically, we've shown this slide because it's basic and it should be indelibly imprinted in your thinking that whenever you deal with any area 
whether it's geology, biology, or anything else in early Genesis, you're dealing with only one of two, two worldviews. And you'll hear people say, oh, there's thousands of stories of origins. Well, yes and no. Yes, there are thousands of stories, but they all can be classified in these two terms. And those are really the only, that's the choice that you have. So we talked about that, and I thought I'd throw in some quotes tonight from, uh, of course, you remember this. We started the class off in showing you that, in fact, historically, uh, there was a corpus of pagan writings that tried to explain the origin of the earth, explain the origin of man. There was the most famous one, Enuma Elish. We contrasted that with Genesis. We said there are certain parallels that show, in fact, that all cultures, all races, uh, had some information that they remembered from Noah, because they're all descended from Noah. But mostly the structure of this was transformed, and we can measure the, the effect of evil on the human mind by simply holding up the Genesis text and holding up a pagan text and saying, since they were both originated from the same era of history, what we have here is a demonstration of what human mind would come up with naturally. And in the Genesis text, we have what the human mind comes up with when it's interfered with by the Holy Spirit to preserve truth. So it's a very interesting study of comparative literature. And ultimately what you have here, if you're interested in psychology, uh, what you have here is uh, a real insight into the distortion at the subliminal levels of the human mind by sin. This is what sin does intellectually. And you can measure it. You can actually measure the effect of sin on thinking by simply comparing the Bible text with parallel pagan texts. Now, we want to show how modern, modern paganism that we've talked about so often is well recognized. And I showed you these quotes last fall but just to refresh our minds, just to say that Charlie Clough didn't come up with this continuity of being idea. These are all quotes from a Darwinian. This is a Darwin's, oh, Darwinian historian, very um, well-known man, scholar, who writes these statements. And that's where what I can point to, that we haven't learned anything in this class that originated with me. I'm just passing on what scholars on both sides of the issue report. Namely, this is a man who lived around the time of the Protestant Reformation, uh, Comte de Fofon, reveals himself as an exponent of the doctrine of the great chain of being. Lamarck held a version of the ancient doctrine of the great chain of being. The chain of being is a notion traceable back to Plato. It formed part of the general mental furniture of most educated men from the Renaissance to the end of the 18th century. So it's always been with us in the West. But it's not just been in the West. This pagan idea has plagued the East as well as the West. Here, in the Darwin Centennial, 1960, University of Chicago, Issues in Evolution, Saul Tack said, the Far Eastern philosophers thought of creation in evolutionary terms. By Far Eastern philosophers, he's talking about men who lived in the time of the Old and New Testaments. Far Eastern philosophers thought of creation in evolutionary terms, a belief in an inherent continuity of all creation, and second, a reference to the merging of one species into another. So again, it's, I'm not ever making this material up. This, this, this is well-known material. It's just that it's sort of excised from most classroom discussions. Here is the Buddhist council that approved this in their doctrinal statement as recently as 1951. The universe was evolved, not created, and it functions according to law, not according to the caprice of any god. So that's representative. That's the central doctrinal statement in the Western Hemisphere for Buddhists today. Henry Fairfield Osborne 
was a man very well noted because of his role in establishing and, and managing the American Natural History Museum. When I began the search for anticipation of the evolutionary theory, I was astonished to find how many of the pronounced and basic features of the Darwinian theory were anticipated as far back as the 7th century B.C. You know what the 7th century B.C. is? That's the time when Isaiah the prophet wrote. Now, isn't that one interesting? This is not new. This is the same, same idea. We've got to think as Christians strategically in terms of the big ideas of our faith. And we can't allow ourselves to be maneuvered off chasing little trees in the forest. What we're dealing here is the major outline of the forest. So, uh, moving on, I wanted to show another slide that we had dealt with before. And that is, once again, to fix in our mind the difference that we have looked at for the last eight months between evolution and Genesis 1. Can't mix these two. In the beginning was God, in the beginning was gas. Cool liquid water, hot condensing matter. Sun, stars created after life on earth, sun, stars before life on earth. Life created on land, life evolves in the sea. Birds created with fish before mammals, birds evolved with mammals after fish. Man created directly from the earth and woman created from man, man evolves from mammals. Rain doesn't occur until after man is created. Rain occurs millions of years before man is created or evolves. Creation processes, very important for tonight, creation processes do not continue today. Whatever the processes were in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, chopped them off. God ceased his work. So he's not doing his work. So we can't empirically observe his work. So we don't know how the work happened. All we've got is a narrative that tells us it happened this way. We haven't, in no way can you study this scientifically because it's not there to study. Evolutionary processes do continue today. Fundamental differences in kind, fundamental unity of life differing only in degree. Death. And the Bible is abnormal. It's an abnormal addition after creation. In evolution, death is a normal process. Now, you can't get much different than that. And that's the, that's the big strategy that we've tried to emphasize again and again and show that the nature of God, the nature of man, and the nature of nature, what you believe about those three things hinges on this. Now you think, may think you can maintain your faith as a Christian and not engage that issue. If you do that, you've already retreated because you've made your faith subjective. Your faith then can be dismissed as your religious opinion. It's utterly unrelated to anything outside of you. It's just your heart. It's the religion of the heart. Well, yes, it is the religion of the heart, but it's also the religion of the environment outside of my heart. Truth is truth everywhere, or it is truth nowhere. Well, tonight what we want to do is we want to look at 2 Peter 3 and fix in our mind a principle from that passage uh, before we study the, the problem, the last problem we want to concentrate on is what about the geological issues? 2 Peter chapter 3. And you'll note from, from our discussion of this that... It's related, not just to geology, but the second advent of Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, where is the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ? What is the attack? The attack is, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue, all continues just as it was in the beginning. In other words, this is the perpetuation of a constant. And you'll recall, again from a diagram that we've reviewed again and again and again and again, the limitations of human knowledge. That no matter who you are, Christian or non-Christian, your knowledge is limited to this box. 
can't go outside of the box. No way. There's no direct knowledge by you, by me, by any member of the human race ever outside of this box. So we can try to extend the box, extend the domain by extending our senses with tools. Except we can only do so on three of the four sides of the box. One side of that box you cannot extend by any tool unless it's a time machine because you can't go into the future and you can't go into the past beyond direct observations. Without, oh, you can, but to do so you have to do with conjecture. And that's our point. It's been our point in Appendix B. It's been our point in Appendix C that we extrapolate out here by observing something going on in here just as Second Peter chapter 3 says, all things continue, that is, continue because we observe them, all things we observe in this box continue and have continued forever. So this is the by faith situation. It's, this is what's not labeled in your newspaper. It's what's not labeled in Time magazine articles. And this is what's not labeled when you see it on television. What they want to tell you is there are certain, quote, factual things <coughs> describing stuff out here outside of the box. And they're using the word F-A-C-T. Our point is that when the F-A-C-T is used for something outside of the box, that word is being used differently than you're used to using it. And this is where we have brainwashing going on. It's a very it's a, a deceitful use of words. Those are not facts. Those are conjectures. And to use the word F-A-C-T to describe that when in fact it's not fact is wrong. It's a vocabulary problem and it's a deceitful use of words. And as Christians, we don't have to put up with that. We challenge the use of that vocabulary. All right, let's look now on our notes on, on Appendix D uh, on page 124. What is the basic presupposition? If you look down the bottom of, of page 124, the issue there is the principle of interpreting. How do we interpret the rocks of the earth? What do we use as an interpretive principle? Well, the first paragraph under the major topic on page 24 is that if the Bible is correct, then we have a set of information we used this before we have creation one major event what's the second major event we have after creation that we study the fall second major event is the fall what started with the fall that's significant to rocks because it's things that are in the rocks that are dead. Death starts with the fall. So now if we see fossils in rock and fossils are dead, then it follows that the rocks must be dated after what? After the fall. So now we have creation of fall and then we have the third event we studied, which Peter in this passage makes not just a local flood, but as he says in verse 5 and verse 7, that it affected both the heavens and the earth. And so we have this event causing that catastrophe. And we don't know what caused this. This is just data from Scripture, but something radically happened physiologically to man's body, and it's reported in the Scripture, though it's never explained in the Scripture. It's just reported. So we have three things, three events. And when we as Christians, we have to learn to think scripturally. And when we start looking at rocks and we want to answer the question, well, what are these? What's, what's the principle involved? We have to say, well, we know one thing. We know there was a creation. We know that at the point of creation and creation week that God 
had the, 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 all the rocks, except the sedimentary rocks, the igneous rocks and other rock, kind of rocks, presumably were created, soil was created, plants were created, and animals were created. So these things came into existence at that point. Then after creation, we have a second point called the fall, and that's where death starts. So if we have a fossil, and the fossil is dead, the fossil must be located to the right of that point. Then we have, further on in Scripture, something called the flood, which Peter interprets as cosmic, that that flood was a cosmic event, not just an earthly event. Therefore, we have a, a, a source of a water-based catastrophe. Now, if we have a water-based catastrophe that changed the earth, and we go out and we look at rocks, and rocks can be igneous rocks, igneous intrusions, or they can be these nice sedimentary rocks that you observe along highway cuts and so forth. Now, what's true of sedimentary rocks? Into what kind of an environment were sedimentary rocks made? water. Every sedimentary rock on earth was generated under water. Now isn't this a strange coincidence? What does the Bible say happened in past history? Major flood. So we have a water catastrophe and we simultaneously observe all over the place that we have sedimentary rocks in which fossils are trapped that are dead. So the, the challenge for us as Christians is can we take the data of historical geology and interpret it within this framework? That's the challenge. That's what paragraph on 124 is all about. I say in the last sentence of that paragraph, it was a high energy, not evergy, but a high energy epoch. What do I mean by a high energy epoch? What I mean is, crucial to the Bible's interpretation is when we get into stuff like the flood, I say high energy because energy is work. It's the work that is done. A lot of work can be done in a short amount of time. I suppose engineers would fault me in saying basically we're talking about power here. Energy over time. We have high energy events that happened. So the Bible's theme or principle of interpreting rock strata is that it must be interpreted within at least these three events, possibly more, and that these events, particularly the flood, were high-energy events. All right, let's go now to what we usually get in the classroom. This is one of the facts that we're told is a fact. We're told that the basis for interpretation in historical geology ought to be what is called uniformitarianism. That's this big, long word. Uniformitarianism. And uniformitarianism says that processes, this goes back to that box illustration I showed you, there's my box, that events and processes that are observed such as erosion, such as sedimentation, that these processes that we can measure now scientifically inside the box happen back here. That's Second Peter. Remember, all things continue as they were. So I can take erosion rates, that's how fast the rocks wear down, and I can take sedimentation rates, how fast sediment builds up to make rocks. I observe the processes and I perpetuate them. And using this idea, using present day rates, this is very low energy. So the principle here is this is a low energy process. The Bible position is there was a high-energy catastrophe. And we paraphrase the, the dis debate over the interpretive principle as a conflict between catastrophism on one hand and the pagan side of the house, uniformitarianism. Those are the two conflicting principles. That's why on the top of page 125 of Appendix D, I describe that pagan process. It says... 
that the universe is safe from any catastrophic intervention of the biblical God, so there certainly has not been any such high-energy event like the flood that could have caused most of the global geologic formations. All rock formations and fossil assemblages, therefore, came about from a variety of low-energy processes similar to those we observe today, river flooding, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, and so on. This is the principle that they use. So we want to see that we're going to come out with two different answers here, but we're coming out with two different answers, not because one of us is stupid and the other one is smart. They're smart unbelievers, brilliant unbelievers, smarter than we are. We're not knocking anybody's intelligence here. This is not a question of IQ. This is a question of the premises of thought. If you start with two and two is four, and somebody else starts with two and two is five, somewhere along the process you're going to get different answers. This is a, it's just a feature of thinking. Okay. The history on page 125 of geologic interpretation. I just want to review that quickly so you get a feel for what's happened here and why we are where we are today. As geologic studies began, if you'll follow with me, I, I want to read this because there's a lot of material I packed into these sentences and I want to explain as I go through. So much of tonight I want to pretty well stick with this text. As the geologic studies began after the Protestant Reformation, notice when they began, folks, who was the trigger house and the source of geologic study? It occurred after the Protestant Reformation. Now, isn't that an interesting historical side note? Several Bible-believing naturalists tried to develop a flood model to explain newly discovered data. To their credit, and please notice this is a historically valid point for our side, it was these Bible believers who first argued against the medieval interpretation that fossils were strange objects, should be plural word, objects, produced in situ. It was a belief during the Middle Ages that fossils in the rocks were created in the rocks, that they weren't the bones of dead animals. That was a prevailing belief. It was precisely the Bible-believing geologists who started out in the Reformation who said, look, we're convinced the scripture is the authority. We're not going to accept all these traditions in the church. We go back to the scriptures. And the scriptures tell us about Noah's flood. So we say that those things we observe in the rocks are fossils from Noah's flood. So it's very interesting. They were the ones that, you know, superstitious Middle Ages, yeah, but it was Bible believers that straightened it out. By the late 1600s, however, watch this, because here's where a failure happened, and we today have got to learn from our past mistakes. This is one of those lessons learned chapters. Let's not repeat the same mistakes that we made before. By the late 1600s, certain weaknesses in their approach led them to begin reinterpreting Genesis to allow more time for the natural history of the earth. Unintentionally, they insisted upon explaining the geologic data by means of processes that were still going on in their day. And underline that, because that was their error. They were trying to account for this stuff on the basis of processes still going on in their time. But once they had done this, which... If you look at 2 Peter 3, what were they doing? They were compromising with uniformitarianism. And once they had done that, then the unbelievers came right in on top of it and said, See, we told you all along, no way can, can, can processes today be interpreted in any kind of a scriptural framework. And they, they, they were had. Lost the battle. Started off with a wrong idea and they interpreted it, they accepted the wrong principle, and they wound up faked out. In the 19th century, saw the total victory of uniformitarians, and please notice, before Darwin. That's very important. Before Darwin ever published any of his works. The accommodationist strategy toward Genesis narrative by Christians was already well underway. In fact, do you know the institution that pushed and published Darwin? It was the church. Can you believe that? The church in England where the, was the great promulgators of Darwin. They thought that was a fantastic. And you think, for crying out, well, what were they smoking? What was going on in the water supply? 
with these people. And they did. And no one ever challenged the validity of the uniformitarian principle that everyone was using and accepting. The only people that we know historically stood against it were a few isolated fundamentalists and the Seventh-day Adventists. Remarkable. In 1961, the battle was resumed by the publication of the book, The Genesis Flood. These authors, on the basis of very careful exegesis of Genesis, insisted that the Bible could not accommodate uniformitarianism. The narrative was simply record too much evidence of catastrophe. So now we come to the flood issue of flood geology today. What has happened? If you look under that the first paragraph under the title Flood Geology Today on page 126, uniformitarian-based geology, this is what you're going to get in every textbook, you will get this in every classroom, you will get this in every TV program, you will get this in every news article. So I'm not telling you something here that I'm making up. This is all over the place. And, it, and, it, and if you doubt this, you're looked upon as some sort of an intellectual freak. Uniformitarian-based geology that completely dominates the intellectual world today prides itself on its ability to explain the many different geologic formations around the world with one picture. Geologists speak of a geologic column that contains a historical record of macroevolution from its lower layers of simple fossil forms to its upper layers with more complex forms. Let's look at what they're talking about here. This is a geologic column. You'll see it in every earth science textbook that you'll ever own presented as fact. We're going to see how factual it is today. This is supposedly factual. Nobody doubts this except a few fundamentalists. Rock, obviously, on the bottom was there first and the other rock laid on top of it. Call that the principle of superposition. Good principle. We don't argue that. We're not arguing that principle. No problem. What we're arguing is, A, whether this exists as a uniform principle all over the earth, and B, that the time scale associated with it. Let me show you something. Here, down the bottom, is the Precambrian rock strata. Every high school student who does earth science knows of the Precambrian layer. That's the layer before life really got going. Just primitive bio, bio, primitive cells found in Precambrian rock. Over that, we have all these kind of rocks. For the purposes of tonight, so we don't lose the forest for the trees because we don't have time in the, in the time remaining, just think of this as three periods. Okay? Cenozoic, which means new, the new era, zoic, is the word for life. New or recent life. Mesozoic, middle life and paleozoic old life so let's divide the column three ways new life middle life old life and those are the words that they've given to this geologic column okay let's look further they assure us that the many layers of sedimentary rock took untold millions of years to lay down Vast times were required for the necessary volume of debris to accumulate in order to supply thick sedimentary rock layers that are many thousands of feet thick. This sedimentary rock, by the way, is immense. In a Cretaceous strata that I was working with in, in Glen Rose, Texas, underneath where we were digging was probably 14,000 feet worth of sedimentary rock. That's over two miles of sedimentary debris. That's a lot. So they are right. In many places, very thick. Erosion of large chunks of such sedimentary rock demands hundreds of thousands of years. The challenge is for us to go into this. Now, well, let me explain the rest of page 126 by a little doodling on this slide. What happens I'll try to overlay so I won't mark up the bottom slide. What happens is you say, well, how do they date these rocks? Remember, these rocks were dated before radioactive dating systems. So how do they date them? The clue is right there. See? Zoic, zoic, 
Zoic. How do you guess they're dating the rocks? If they're naming them for life forms, what are they using to date the rocks? Fossils. Ah, oh, that's not interesting. Hmm. In other words, Paleozoic rock is characterized not just because it's down bottom, but because of the kind of fossils that are found in it. Similarly for Mesozoic and Cenozoic. Now, not all fossils can be used this way because there are some fossils that occur in all three areas. Let's, call, let's make a fossil looking like a star. Now, if a, if a star-type fossil is found in all three, can that be a fossil used for dating? No. So what, in dating, what do you have to use? What kind of a fossil do you have to use to identify the rock? Well, a fossil is always found in that kind of rock, right? So we find what we call index fossils. So we'll call these little eyes. Eye number one, eye number two. Keep in mind there's, there's dozens of these index fossils, okay? So they say that wherever I1 is, it's that. I2, that, because they've observed that in certain other areas. Now here are some problems that immediately arise. The problem is, as you can go around El Paso, Texas, for example, and see, you'll find rock with two layers like that. And you go walking along the rock interface and you see an edge like this. Not flat, like a sawtooth. Furthermore, you observe I1 fossils here and I3 fossils here. What do we say I3 fossils? That's a new fossils. These are old fossils. Well, now, how do the old fossils get on top of the new fossils? It seemed to me that evolution's reversed. Well, the explanation is overthrusting. The explanation is that, that originally the rocks were sort of like this. Now the rock was like this. Somehow the earth buckled, and, and in many cases this happened. And one plate, the old plate, slid over the new plate. It's called an overthrust. That, that happened. But where it happens, you can see the grinding nature of what took place. What do you notice about that? That would sort of complicate that little interpretation. You don't have to be an engineer. Isn't there something obvious about that? That why it can't be an overthrust? It can't be an overthrust because if it thrust over, well, how do we have the jagged nature between the two? High coefficient of friction there, I'd say. Right? So, the only reason they want to say that's an overthrust is what? Where are they caught? What happens if they don't say this is an overthrust? Put yourself in the, in the uniformitarian position. What would happen to you if you admitted that that was superposition and was not an overthrust? What does that do for you? Tears up your whole scheme of biological evolution, doesn't it? Because now you've got the advanced fossils down underneath and the primitive fossils up high. So overthrusts, from our point of view, we can accept the physical data and they can't. Look at this. I'm talking about physical data. See that interface? That's hard physics. So we can come up to the rock and we allow the physical data to interpret it for us. They can't because they're stuck with their fossil scheme. Let me show you another example, not quite so graphic, but occurs far more often. Let's say we have Paleozoic rock, P, and then we have Cenozoic rock lying on top of each other. Now we have missing layers, okay? What do we do about the missing layers? If you were a uniformitarian geologist, how do you deal with the fact there's no Mesozoic rock there? What would be an explanation? Anybody know? Anybody take earth science? The usual explanation is the Mesozoic rock formed and then for some reason it eroded away over millions of years and then the next layer of rock was deposited on top of it and so we explain missing strata as eroded away strata. 
problem is that oftentimes in some of these interfaces, you find, if you look with a magnifying glass, that the rock is embedded. Layers of it combined with each other. What happened to the Mesozoic rock? Maybe it never was there. Well, then where did they get the geologic column? I thought they said, they told me that in my textbook that that was fact. Well, yeah, it was. Let's see if I can find my, what happened to it here. We go back to the column. That column is made up of all possible, con all possible instances on all possible continents. In other words, that is a conglomeration of stuff that's in the North American continent, the South American continent, the European continent, Africa, and Australia. It's a conglomeration of all the possible rocks that have ever been found. Because in some areas, you, don't ha you never have all of this, except in very few areas. Now, what's been so slick recently is the same guy that did the study, remember I told you when we were going through the flood, I mentioned a man's name by the name of Woodrappy. And Woodrappy spent five or six years studying just one problem, the ark. And he's answered every argument ever brought against the ark. You know, what did they do with the manure? How much did they feed the animals? Could six, eight people take care of all the cons of the ark? All that stuff. This guy is a real leech. He latches on to something, he goes for it. He's got two graduate degrees, one in biology and one in geology. Smart guy. So what he decided he'd do to, to check out this fact that we're always told about was he divided the earth in 967 squares. He went through library after library after library and worked out probably, I think he must have consulted four or 5,000 different geology articles and plotted with a computer program every one of the 967 squares, whether it had this rock, 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 okay? So he went through the whole planet that way. Here's what he found out. Now, this geologic fact, this geologic column, you'd expect to see all over the place, wouldn't you? I mean, after all, it's fact. Well, let's see how much fact it is. Here is a map he made where he tried to locate where on the planet you find all the Paleozoic section of the geologic column. The black are areas where he can't find any. This is a careful study, four or five thousand geologic articles. Now, there are some areas. There's one, Paleozoic. All the Paleozoic rock is found there. Some there, quite a bit around the Tibet area, China, part of the Philippines, Java, um, Borneo, northern tip of Australia, a little bit around the Great Lakes. Hmm, interesting fact that we're all assured is undeniable. But when you read the literature, and by the way, he was very generous in this study. You know why? Because he permitted the layers to be inverted. He didn't care what order they were. He was just looking for all of them. Show me where all the Paleozoic rock is on Earth. Well, after doing that, he decided, hmm, let's look at another fact. Let's see about the Mesozoic rock. See if we can find the areas of the world where the entire part of the Mesozoic part of the geologic column exists. Well, he had more luck here. Bigger areas. The Rockies, out in here, British Columbia, Central Africa, tip of Africa, all through the Middle East and uh, that area. So, yeah, they're, they're, the entire Mesozoic is there. Then he went on, did the same thing with the Cenozoic, and I won't bore you with all the slides, but uh, we'll show this one. This is a slide that shows where the entire geologic column exists. Black indicates it doesn't. 
Well, there are some places where every rock in the geologic column is. There's a little place there. There's two places out here, one in Mexico. The most complete one is, the largest area in the Earth is in Poland. We don't need to talk about Polish humor, but that's the place where the entire geologic column exists in a wide area. Now, folks, this shows you what happens when a Christian who is a scholar takes some time to look carefully at what's going on. For 150 years, we've been told about this geologic column stuff. And when you go to look at four to 5,000 geology references, that's what you find. And we're supposed to be the people that are the suspicious ones, superstitious ones. Well, we, we want to say then, fine, the critical say, okay, how do you Christians then explain the rock? We've got to come up with an interpretive model to explain how do you suppose the flood caused all this rock to form the way it did. That has not been easy. And it hasn't been easy because we're not sure how much of the rock was done during the flood, how much was done by uh, the earth uh, shaking itself out after the flood. Um, we know that there's been vast changes on the earth. For example, those of you familiar with the West, you know it's Great Salt Lake, and Great Salt Lake is just a in the rock layers. Now, let's just think of a process here. Let's, before I show you Wood Morapi's model, let me just throw this one out to you. If you look at the geologic column and you happen to notice that down here in the Paleozoic rock, right there, it's called Paleozoic old life. All of, those all of those fossils that are used have one thing in common. Very interesting. You know what they all are? They're all marine animals. Marine fossils. Now, if the world were flooded today, where would you find marine fossils? In the middle of Maryland? No, you'd find the marine fossils would had to have come from where? Some area, obviously low-lying, where the water was shallow and these things were living. Ah, doesn't this suggest something then? Perhaps a model of the formation of this is if we could hypothesize that what caused this rock strata is the flood operating on different zones different ecological niches so that this Paleozoic rock isn't old rock, it's, it's pre-flood, the remnants of a pre-flood swampy area. Well, make a long story short, what Woodmerapi has done is come up with this model. Here's how he envisions the flood had happened. Remember when we studied the flood, there was an observation I said that you wanted to pay attention to in the text as we come back to it. Well, tonight we come back to it. Turn over to Genesis 7. In Genesis 7, when the floods began, verse 11 of chapter 7, Two observations are reported. It says in verse 11, in the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Where did the water come from? It came from below as well as above. Now, if it was below, it came out of the ground. What happens if the water was in the ground subterraneally, subterranean water there is, and it suddenly burst above the ground? What happens to the ground over which, which was over where the water was? You have a sinkhole. 
Well, what Wood Merapi is hypothesizing is that at certain stages of the flood, early stages, here is one of those sinkholes forming. Here is an area of land with a sinkhole forming. The water rushes in because the flood is now increasing in, in depth. The water flushes into this sinkhole from this area, from this strata here. Notice he's labeled this section one. Notice that the rock around the land area that is now being scoured and the debris from area three is now being brought into and burying area one. What Morapi thinks is if you took a geologic a dig now at point E, which is in the middle of the sinkhole, you would look at your column and you'd see this. It would be Paleozoic rock, one, say, the lowest kind of rock. And that's all you'd see in that area. In the areas where the scouring occurred, let's take a sample at B, location B. In that location, you'd have the rock, one, that was buried, plus the debris from area three. So now you look at the column there, and lo and behold, we have three on top of one. Then, in other areas where you have four, rock four, higher than three, four sinks into three, which is sinking into one. So in zone K, later you could reconstruct the rock. You'd have rock one, rock three, and rock four. Now what this has done is now this explains why there is, in fact, a tendency to form a geologic column because you don't see one, four, and three, do you? One generally occurs at the lowest level or it doesn't occur at all. There is a certain sequence statistically to the rock and that's exactly what we observe. We don't observe it uniformly as the maps show, but statistically it's there. So this is the Woodmerapi flood model. It's been worked on. It took about seven or eight years of work, as you can imagine, digging through four or five thousand journals to get this data. But this is the sort of work that, that Bible-believing scientists are now at work doing, of, of constructing this. Like last week, I told you about Humphreys and I told you about Herman and their models that explain relativity, explain the nature of time, explain gravity and time interactions, explain the issues of, of sudden appearance, of catastrophic happenings, and so forth. So, um, if you turn to page 127, there's the quote from Wood Morapi. Second paragraph on this page. Much of the column, how much of the column actually exists? In a remarkable study, John Wood Murphy divides the Earth's landmass in 967 equal areas. He then surveyed geologic literature. He found, much to his surprise, that of the 10 periods in the geologic column, less than 13% of the Earth's land average has as many as five periods represented, and less than 1% of the Earth's surface has all 10 periods represented. So obviously, it's a very unusual event to have that much rock put together. These figures count the periods whether or not they're even in the proper sequence. His conclusion, since only a small percentage of the Earth's surface obeys even a significant portion of the geologic column, it becomes an overall exercise of gargantuan special pleading and imagination for the evolutionary uniformitarian paradigm to maintain that there ever were geologic periods. Areas of missing layers are usually explained as due to non-deposition or erosion, but Woodmerapi notes that this excuse is self-serving because there is no deterministic reason why the Earth's land surface should or should not become everywhere depositional sometime within the span. What he's saying there, remember I said there were missing layers, and he's just saying that there's no a priori reason why you should find vast erosions in one area and not in another one, if everything was kind of uniform. So anyhow... The point that, that Wood Morapi says has, has made by this, by this technique is, again, I caution you, as I did last week when we dealt with Dr. Herman and Professor Humphreys, I said, these guys aren't saying they've got the last word, okay? But they're men who are gargantuan pioneers. They are doing, folks, in our day, what Darwin did in the 19th century in his day. These are guys that will be maligned, ridiculed, obscured, and ignored. 
by the intellectual community. But believe me, they are your fellow believers who are brilliant people operating in their specialized scholarly areas who believe that Christ is Lord. And they're showing that he is Lord by their gutsy way of taking on all their colleagues, challenging the, the, the whole concept in which they live, and, and basically becoming rebels for a very great cause. A remarkable story of stuff that's going on in our time. Now, I want to conclude tonight by pointing out the fact that not only has Wood Morapi discovered things like this and able to at least show us that models are possible that do explain the data on a biblical basis, but we can also review the fact that in, in the course of the last 30 years of careful field work that creationists have done, they have discovered things like polystrata fossils. Here's a polystrata fossil. See if I can draw one. This is a tree trunk. These are rock layers. Okay, so there's the tree. A petrified tree at a 60 degree angle piercing many rocks. What does that tell you? Let's look at that. What are some explanations of that? Let's think through something. Millions of years to lay down each strata, huh? What's wrong with that explanation? How come the tree sat there at a 60 degree angle for three million years and didn't rot? We've got a little problem here. And if you say, well, it took millions of years to lay down and then the tree was rammed down into it. If you can ram a tree trunk like that through rock, let me know. I have some engineer friends who would love to do that for piling work. So, this is one area where the data clearly show evidences of catastrophic deposition. At least in this part, this had to have been laid down rapidly. Well, if it was laid down rapidly, then it proves, doesn't it, that there was a process, a high-energy event, at one time at least, that did that. And then we have areas where we have total chaos. We have what we call fossil graveyards, where fossils are just piled one on top of another, all smashed to pieces. Just, just three weeks ago, there was an announcement of some work in Africa being done. And what they found was they found a dinosaur, apparently a female dinosaur, in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Her body was completely hovering over eggs. And the interpretation is obvious that something happened very fast. That dinosaur chose whatever it was that buried her under this massive debris, she chose to preserve those eggs while she was subjected to this catastrophe. I'm not suggesting that was the flood. There's other explanations for that, post-flood explanations. I'm just saying that in Earth history, there is this tendency. Now, Woodmore also, in the course of this modeling, and I must conclude with this, he also has an explanation of why it is that human, human remains probably haven't been found in the lower Paleozoic rocks. Now, we don't, I say probably because at least on two occasions I have had it said to me, one by a Christian who retired from the Smithsonian Institute, who said deep in the bowels of the Smithsonian Institute, right down the road, are fossils that you would be very surprised at that don't fit the scheme and they've been in drawers down there for the last 30 or 40 years but they never trotted out because they, they just don't fit. One of those fossils, this man said, was brought in to us by coal miners from Kentucky who deep down in coal, Carboniferous period, many years ago, found a human hand. Now I tell you that if a human hand could be documented as being found in the Carboniferous period, it'd blow the lid off the whole evolutionary story. 
Because we're talking millions and millions of years before man's supposed to evolve. But we don't know that because we're not the custodians of the data. The other side has all the data. So we don't know that. But on Rudrapi's model, what his argument is that in the antediluvian earth, when the flood happened, that the antediluvian earth was flatter than today. And when this deluge process began, if you took a map and say this was a sea, and you have rivers flowing into the sea, the human communities were probably small and along these rivers. At the flood, these rivers became torrents, probably swept most of the people in those local areas of human habitat out to sea, in which case their bodies were never fossilized because they floated. What happens in floods to dead bodies? They bloat and they rise to the surface after a while and they're eaten or they rot. And so by varying the, the habitat and the location of the antediluvian race and saying that it's within 10 to 20 million people living in Noah's time and dividing the total volume of sedimentary rock by the number of people, you come out with the fact that even if they all were captured and none of their bodies rotted, they all were fossilized, there would be probably one person for every 100 cubic miles of rock. So the probability of ever seeing a human being in any of this is exceedingly small. Because Woodmerapi reminds us of something. In Genesis, how many, how many human beings were created in creation week? Two. How many animals were created in creation week? Ah, we're not told, are we? Thousands and thousands. So therefore, what was the human ratio to animal population in the antediluvian world? Very small. So therefore, the statistical likelihood of even finding any fossilized human in any part of the rock layer is very, very small. And we don't know whether or not they've been found. There are some odd evidences from time to time that people say they saw it. We have had another report in Ohio, and again, uh, this happened about 1910. An uh, old family in Ohio was shoveling coal into their coal-fired kitchen stove, and a big chunk of coal dropped out on the floor as they were shoveling it in and it broke open, and inside they found a brooch, a piece of jewelry. And that's interesting. How did the jewelry get inside the coal? This I have documented, as far as I've tried to find eyewitnesses, I've, I've located a picture of the thing, I've located an eyewitness account that swore they saw it, and we have an explanation given by the other side that, well, um, it must have, the brooch must have fallen into the coal somehow. But the point is that these evidences do crop up from time to time. And if you can hear about them and you're around them, those are things to think about. Okay, well, that concludes our section tonight and for our, our series for, the, for this year, for this fall, spring. And as I said, next time we'll deal with, uh, we'll start in with Genesis 12 and go on in a more classical-like Bible study. Uh, though we will also then deal with things like the Ice Age, what happened to dinosaurs since the flood, because that has to be dealt with because the book of Job deals with it. So we have to work our way through some of the pre-Abrahamic texts and then we'll come down to the origin of what we call civilization and so forth. So I hope this has been uh, useful. At least if you don't get, don't get snowed by all the details, I'm just trying to show you the fact and give you the assurance that Christians can be Christians and believe with their head as well as their heart and not have to be intellectually ashamed and embarrassed by the gospel that it's the other side that should be ashamed of themselves, trying to erect constants by sheer conjecture and trying to invent interpretations that are nothing and have not been substantively changed uh, since the ancient times. Father, we thank you for our time together and we thank you for the gift of Scripture. We pray that you would constantly speak to our hearts and give us the assurance that your word is truth because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So if the Word of God is, does not appear to be true, we cannot believe. And you know that. And this is why you've opened up 
our hearts by the Holy Spirit to see the faulty interpretations that men down through the years have given to your creation, to fabricate stories, to deliberately misinterpret in order to insulate themselves from your claims on their lives. And Father, we know that our hearts in the flesh are identical and we can't look down our nose at those kinds of people because were it not for your grace, we too would be the same way. So we thank you for regenerating us, for giving us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask that you would empower us and enlighten us to your texts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.